five seconds in a gun battle or a fight that you might not be winning yeah. feels like an eternity. So your cop's body senses were tangled. Yeah. 44% were killed in the first hour, 73% in the first three hours, 99% in the first 24 hours. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is my lovely co-host. Hi, Jim. It's Francie Hakes, everybody, former state and federal prosecutor. How are you, Jim? I'm pretty good. And we have a pretty interesting guest today, don't we? We definitely do. And that is? Hi, I'm uh, Jeremy Earl. And Jeremy, what is your profession? Uh, I am a police officer out of uh, Markham, Illinois. And where is that located? That's a uh, south suburb of Chicago. Okay. And you have another interesting career, don't you? Yes. Yes. I am, uh, I'm in the entertainment business. I'm an actor. started out as an, as, as an actor, and I started to uh, write and direct as well. That's pretty interesting. Well, so you're not busy at all, then? Right. <laughs> not as much as I, you know, it's, as I would hope to be one day, yeah. Okay. Well, it's interesting topic. Well, maybe we'll be able to get into that in a little more detail. Absolutely. So start off with telling us when you got involved in law enforcement. Yeah, it was, um, believe it or not, actually how it all started. I never was wanted to be the police. It, you know, it was always a, kind of a second thought. And I was a carpenter. I was a union really? carpenter for years. And I had a job doing a floor at a guy's house. And it uh, turns out that he was a deputy chief of police at the time. And we talked and we talked as I laid the tile floor in his massive kitchen. And then um, at the end of the job, he says, do you like what you do? I was like, I guess I'm covered in mortar. I guess. You know, how, was, I how old were you at the time? Then I was, I was in my twenties. I was, uh, I want to say 25, 25, I think I was either 25 or 26. Yeah. And he, Gave me an application, and I thought to myself, like, police departments don't hire people like me. And what I mean by that is, like, I was a knucklehead in high school. You know, I was a knucklehead throughout, you know, most of my adult life. And by knucklehead, this is one of the things that our listeners like to hear. We try to bring them behind police lines. So what exactly do you mean by knucklehead? Well, I wasn't the best disciplinary person in school you know not nothing too bad i just i was i was a class clown i was a jokester i you know um just all those kinds of things uh i didn't you know ditch school or nothing like that but 
uh, growing up where I grew up and I look different. I'm uh, well, Serena, but I'm light skinned with green eyes and blonde hair, but I'm a black kid. And when you're growing up in the inner city of Chicago and you look that different, uh, you become the object of bullying. Therefore, mm. I was a knucklehead in a sense where I found comedy and acting out as a way to get a different form of spotlight on me, mm-hmm. you know? But then as I grew up, I started to get in trouble in high school because when I see other people being bullied, that just angered me mm-hmm. to no end, my brother and myself, because my brother is also, he has blue eyes and blonde hair. We're both black kids, you know? And, um, you know, I, I would get in trouble like that, but I was always a likable kid, even to the administration, I was always likable. So I was like, ah, you know, I, yeah, I did, you know, crazy stuff in school. So so anyway, the uh, he gave me an application I filled out the application and then this is the first time I ever realized that you have to like pay <laughs> to apply, you know? You pay to get a job. <laughs> right. It's really the opposite of what you'd think right. it would go, yeah. but okay, yeah. so you yeah. had to pay. So, yeah, to pay the application fee as they called it. And so, of course, at the station, I made a joke. I was like, what am I paying for? You know? And uh, they didn't find it funny. And uh, so, of course, I filled out the application and uh, went through the process and a year later I was hired. But what was hilarious about my hiring process is it got down to four people and of course I put the deputy chiefs down as a reference you're a reference exactly but we get down to uh, it was five of us and it was three spots I started out and this is the first time I come to uh, found out about small town politics after the testing process I was number two on the list after they found out who my reference was, I went from number two to number five. Literally, the list was posted, and the next day I was number five. And I was like, oh, I don't know how this works. Maybe they found something. Have no idea. So now I'm upset. But wait, wait, wait. Before you I say know, I'm that, confused. you have the deputy chief mm-hmm. as your reference, mm-hmm. and you go from number two all the way down to number five? Yes. So somebody does not like the deputy chief. Exactly. Really? Mind you, my deputy chief at the time was the youngest sitting deputy chief in the state of Illinois. It had never been a younger deputy chief, and he who's now the chief of police now. But at the time, he was, I mean, I guess he got into his spot with a little bit of, you know, when you're playing politics, you know, it can go either way. You're you going to make some enemies. Right, exactly. So so he had some enemies in the board of commissioners, because he, you know, beat somebody else out for deputy chief spot. So... Now I'm upset. And I'm like, ah, oh, man. Because you you're know. number five, there's only three spots. Right, exactly. So I'm like, oh, you know, darn it. But as you can see, I still made it. And that's the funny part. Well, how did you do that? So the rest of the guys, before you go into Chicago, because we go to Chicago Police Academy, before you go into Police Academy, you have to do another PT test. So you have one when you your application process, and then months later, you have another one. So if you let yourself go from this point to that point. PT being? Uh, uh, physical uh, training. training test. Yes, yes. So like your bench press, your mile and a half run, your sit-ups, your sit and reach. So <laughs> there was a guy. I'm going to leave his name out of it. He, he was a friend at the time. And he, at Chicago's testing, failed the sit-ups. Now. For some municipalities, if you fail, you can to retake, and it's up to the municipality, but you have to give them the choice. So what he did was didn't tell anybody. So when he didn't tell anybody, then he went to Joliet, which is a, another place where you can retake the test. He just started to constantly retake the test. He kept failing, but he didn't realize that, of course, Joliet is going to call the department because they have to pay for the testing, mm-hmm. you know? So 
So he kept taking the test, so kept, trying to right, pass, trying to pass, and he never passed. So and the, what he didn't know was that all those results were getting reported. Exactly. Yeah. And the way Markham is, they just gave him enough rope and constantly. So what ended up happening, I remember like it was yesterday, I get a call. Uh, I get a call from another deputy chief, like, come to the station. And this time, you know, I've been put through the ringer, you know, mm-hmm. as far as the hiring process. So usually I would get up, put a suit on. I'm going, no. Nah. I had sweatpants on, a t-shirt, I had a hat on. I'm like, whatever, what are they going to offer me to, you know, offer me a custodial job? Whatever, we're going to go see, see what's going on. So I get there, I sit down, and, oh, sorry, and one guy had dropped out. So now that made me number four, and they're only taking three. So I see my buddy walk in. Like, that was the first day of police academy. He was called to reroute to come to the station. I see him, don't think nothing of it. He walks in. Ten minutes later, he walks out. And he looks at me as he walks out, and he's like, they just let me go. I was like, what? You ain't even had the job yet. What could you possibly have done? Then they call me in, and this is the funny part. They give me his badge. (laughs) I'm now hired. That very day, I had to drive from there to Joliet to take my PT test, which I passed. And then the very next day- Thank God you were in your sweats. Right, <laughs> exactly, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's it like intuition, it was happening. And then from that day, I mean, the very next day I was in police academy getting yelled at because I missed the first day, which wasn't even my fault. Because <laughs> wow. you weren't hired. Right, because I, I wasn't hired. So, you know, that oh. guy ceased to be my friend and that was that. Oh, he ceased to be your friend because he thinks- He you- thought that I had some, because of my reference, he thought I had something to do. He couldn't fathom the thought that now the department looks at you like you're untrue, like you're a liar because, and literally that's all he had to do was say, I can pass this. Uh, Let me retake it. And they would let him retake it. Instead he acted like a cheater. Exactly. Mm. So, wow. Wow. That's a valuable lesson. To my advantage. Yeah. But it's a valuable lesson for people who want to work in the Government services. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Integrity is everything. Everything. Because in the FBI, if you ever lie about anything, I mean, you're completely worthless as an FBI agent because you can never testify in trial because you would always have to be informing the defense that you lied in this process or that process. And of course, that would invalidate any testimony that you gave. And so they wouldn't want to risk that on anybody on any case. No, we had that at the U.S. Attorney's Office. We had lists where there were some agents, not very many, but there were some agents in different agencies that had a testimony problem. Mm. And we effectively couldn't use them to investigate cases because there was no way you could ever put them in the position of having to testify at trial either. Yeah. And so it's a serious problem. Your integrity, as you said, your integrity is everything. So you're a police officer. How long, yes. um, how long have you been a police officer? I hired in 07, but Academy started in 08. So from that point till now, I guess you can say. Now. Wow. So that sounds like you might have had a lot of time to have interesting cases. So why Very don't you much. tell us about one of your cases, um, best case or a worst case? Where were you in your career when this particular case came in? Uh, I was a patrolman. I've been on the job for a few years. Okay. And what were you doing? What physically were you doing when you first found out about this case? Physically? <laughs> I mean, unless it's really embarrassing. No, it's not embarrassing. I was just at White Castle. <laughs> I was getting a number two, which is a bacon <laughs> cheeseburger. Okay. Well, let me just tell you, White Castle burgers, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid and we used to go visit my grandmother in the Bronx and- we got to stop off at White Castle because we always passed the White Castle. 
and we got to order as many hamburgers as yes. we wanted. Why? Because they were a nickel. Yeah. A nickel. Little tiny things that you could breathe in. <laughs> and later, when I went to Fordham University, which, of course, is right across the street from White Castle, <laughs> we used to get them, and they were up to a quarter, but it used to be when you're crawling home from the bars at night on the weekends, the best. just stop by and grab like a six-pack or a 12-pack, <laughs> yes. and it was just amazing. So I anyway, never thank had you White for Castle. bringing that back. It's great. So you were getting White Castle burgers, which... We're affectionately named Rat Burgers by us. Yes. Um, in, in the South, I don't. I've never had White Castle. I don't think we have White Castle. We have Crystal, which is, I think, very okay. similar. But they were the little, little tiny, square, square, little tiny square, square burgers on these soft little. But you can buns. eat them like a bite. Yeah, yeah you breathe them in. That's yeah. it. That's like little, like little, like uh, onion, little flakes in them. Oh, yep. God. Yeah, they're like the glazed donuts of hamburgers. Yeah, very true. Yes. You can't just eat one. Right. Exactly. No. So. You're at White Castle, you're getting your burgers, and what happens? Uh, a call comes over the radio from my zone, and the call was funny only because I guess other officers had been to this particular home before I had on previous ships. And uh, so the dispatcher was a little annoyed, if you will, at the call in general, and tells me to report to said home uh, for a possible runaway or missing juvenile okay so mm. that sounds like it has a few issues associated yeah. with it one runaway that happens mm -hmm. and sometimes people think kids run away when they're actually abducted mm -hmm. or when they actually are just over their friends or right. out with somebody they shouldn't be or doing something they shouldn't be doing so there's a lot of issues that you have to be cognizant of when you respond to a call like that so were you solo in a car or did you have a partner yes so we ride 99 which for us means solo to a car the only time where you ride multiple is when you're either ftn or when you start to do narcotics so that was FTO field training officer when you have a field training officer is the only time you're not solo we're always solo in our cars so Alone in your car. That's one of the things that has always driven me crazy about law enforcement. I've, I understand it from a budget perspective, mm -hmm. but I've always felt like from a safety perspective, it is absolute insanity to force officers to ride by themselves. Yeah. We, most officers you talk to will share that sentiment. It's the most unsafe thing because if anything is to happen, we literally have to wait for someone to get there. And as people may know, Five seconds in a gun battle or a fight that you might not be winning yeah. feels like an eternity. And it could also be life or death. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a tough situation to be in. It is. It's wrong. And it's one of the reasons why our resources, instead of going to insane things like shrimp on treadmills mm -hmm. studies, should go to putting two officers in every police car. Okay, wait a minute. Shrimp on treadmills? What? Oh, uh, some something that came out a couple of years ago where the government was funding a study for the shrimp on treadmills. It is a crazy, it's a real thing. Look it up on YouTube, shrimp on treadmills. It's wait, crazy. are these underwater treadmills? Well, oh, I don't yes. get it. Of course they're underwater. The shrimp what? are underwater. Well, I, they, I don't know. I can I, see like a little red shrimp on top of a in a it's, it's, twenty four hour I, fitness no, trying to run on treadmills. What the hell is no, this all about, no, Francie? Have you lost your mind? No. 
<laughs> Look it up on YouTube, shrimp. All right, listeners, we're going to have to check thing. this out. Oh my god! But let's make it back to the real world. Okay, shrimp on trip. That's got to be a winner. That's where prawn come from. There you go. That's okay. how they get so big. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay. They muscle up. Anyway, so you're alone in your car. You yes. get a call about a possible runaway or missing juvenile. Yes. What do you do? So I head over right away. I'm um, and because they say it's been previous calls and the way it came out, but I'm an officer that like to make my own judgment on things, regardless of what happened with previous officers and previous people. So I get to the home and uh, it's a woman and a couple other kids in the home. And the woman was very distraught, but distraught and upset. So that's when I started to think that most likely it's a runaway and not a kidnapping. So she was upset, meaning angry rather than meaning, upset, right. meaning frantic that her kid was missing. More so angry, like she did it again. She's with someone, so-and-so. I've told the officers and they won't do anything. So when you get that, I'm like, oh, I'm already being met with kind of a negative mm-hmm. situation. So I'm not wanting to throw any officer under the bus. So I was just let her know that, hey, I will do a, you know the best of my due diligence and what it is. So I took the proper paperwork. But there was something in her eye for me that was just like she really wanted help and when her back was against the wall in this situation. Mm-hmm. And so how old was the juvenile that was missing or run away? She was 14. But she was 14 and she had a mental delay. So that for me, you know, spikes high urgency right. on my so part. You know. She had the mental capabilities of somebody how like old? a like a seven or eight year old. Oh wow. You yeah. know. So this is serious now. Yeah, right. definitely. Right. Um and so she also had sort of a history apparently. Mm-hmm. When they said there were previous calls to that home, was that on that day or is this on previous dates? It was one call that day, but it was an ongoing situation on the day shift. So mm-hmm. I worked third watch, which is the afternoon shift. So and by afternoon shift, at you four mean? Four to midnight, 4 p.m. to 12 a.m. Right. Which sounds like the night shift. That does me, sound like the, at least the evening shift. That's <laughs> definitely not the afternoon. Okay. So uh, you're on the shift. There, you've just found out about this 14-year-old girl who's not at home and maybe have been a runaway, maybe missing. <laughs> and mother, though, is giving you some level of concern. Yeah, it's it was a almost at her wit's end kind of a feel because I can tell she loved her and genuinely was like worried. And, and a lot of times with these sorts of calls, you can run across parents that could care less, mm. you know, and, and some of it may be just the anger of the moment. They're at their wit's end and this person does so much. But this case was just it was just different. So your cop's body senses were taken. Yeah, yeah, it's it was so different. So I asked the mother where did she think her daughter was, and uh, she gave me a couple of leads, a couple of ideas. Now that part of my job, I take seriously by in in that if I'm answering a call and I have a lead that's within my jurisdiction and within my town, I'm not going to pawn it to the investigations unit. I'm going to actively track that lead. Um, as as part of the service call. So normally, police officers on the street, on patrol, when they get a lead like that, they just pass it off to investigations. They'll right? just put it to yeah, put it. I mean, that's report. a very strict reading of what their job is, right? 
officers get information, investigators investigate it, mm-hmm. right? But you're saying you take steps beyond that. Why is that? Well, in my belief, the core of any police department, whether it's investigation or not, and the backbone of any police department is the patrol unit. So even in patrol, you are still an investigator. You are meant to investigate on a short-term basis. And sometimes valuable seconds and valuable minutes when you're talking about a child, you may not have time or investigations may be so backed up that, you know, they don't even do a, you know, a follow up call to the following week. Right. So you may not have been aware of this at the time, but my unit in the behavioral analysis unit in the FBI did a study on child abductions in the United mm-hmm. States. And of the kids who were abducted and killed, 44% were killed in the first hour, 73% in the first three hours, 99% in the first 24 hours. So just what you said just now is so absolutely true. When a kid goes missing, if they were abducted, the chances of them getting killed, if it's a non-familial stranger abduction, are extremely high. I mean, it's two-thirds of the cases. And of those... I just said the statistics of how quickly they're killed. So it's incredibly important that these things get addressed immediately. Otherwise, that kid's life can be gone like that. Everyone has a family member who always tells the best stories. Not only does StoryWorth preserve these narratives so future generations can enjoy them, but it also brings families together every week as they get to know each other better. StoryWorth was founded by a guy who wanted his dad to record his amazing stories. The family enjoyed the process so much that they launched in April of 2013 so that families around the world can share in this gift as well. Here's how it works. First, purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week, StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. Second, they simply reply to this email with their story, or can record it over the phone by calling the StoryWorth number. All stories are private and are only shared with family that you choose. You can save and edit all your stories on StoryWorth.com. It's a great gift for Father's Day, even at the last minute. I'm definitely signing my father up for it. He's got amazing stories about when he played baseball as a kid and about his time in the Korean conflict. And the best thing is our listeners can receive $20 off by visiting storyworth.com forward slash best case. That's storyworth.com forward slash best case for $20 off when you subscribe. You said that the mother gave you a couple of ideas of where the child might be. Did she give you any idea of who the child might be with? Yes, it was a somebody from another town, a female from another town, a little older, not too, not, not alarmingly older, but she is just the epitome of a bad influence on someone. So she, the mother let me know that her daughter basically was, in a sense, comic relief to this young lady, and that she would be the one that if they were going to commit some form of crime she would be the one to talk her daughter into doing something and have her go do it, her daughter go do it. And see, now, your cop senses were tingling, my prosecutor's senses are tingling, and I can't help being worried about human sex trafficking at this point. The child is the perfect age. She's extra vulnerable because of her developmental delay. Mm -hmm. So I'm concerned about where the story is going, so I'm interested to hear what you did 
next? So I just started at uh, the locations in which the mother told me that she believed she her to be, which was a couple of neighborhood kid hangouts. And she wasn't at any of those places. And the, the young lady that the mother thought her daughter was with was from another town, but she had been in, in our town. She hangs out there. So she's not in the town in which she's from. Now in Markham, there are like in a lot of places, a lot of abandoned homes, you know, and a lot of abandoned homes that have been kicked in, used for drug houses, used for trap houses and such. And so I immediately started to think, well, putting myself in the shoes of a teenager that is with another teen, if we're going to run away, you know, it's not summertime. I would probably go to one of these abandoned homes. Because you need shelter. Exactly. You said used for drug houses, used for trap houses. Can you tell our listeners what that means? Yes. Uh, a, a trap house is, is almost what it sounds like. It's a trap. And by way of it traps all people confined in it where so if you're a drug addict, you go to the trap house to take your drugs, to buy your drugs and take your drugs. And therefore you're confined, you're trapped in that house. And the same thing goes for the drug dealers. They are confined to that house because their clientele come to that house. And that's where they service them and serve them their drugs and give them a place of refuge to take their drugs. So it's called the trap house because it literally traps the people inside. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So you're thinking that these teens, if they are running away, they may be seeking shelter in some of these drug or trap houses. Yes. Yes, because Markham had an abundance because of the after the uh, real estate thing fell through. Is a lot of people lost their homes in our town. So I just set up my own little grid of where the mom's house was, and just started <laughs> every abandoned property. I look for entry points. Wow! So you're doing a neighborhood mm-hmm. canvas basically and a geographic profile <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, I guess. Good instincts. <laughs> yeah. And as the time grew and I kept coming up negative, I began to get more nervous. Um, every, every cop has situations that mean more to them. I have daughters. So anytime, any children, especially girls, it hits home with me a little bit harder than maybe most people. But I didn't get more frantic. I just became more diligent and, and trying to figure this out. So eventually I come to a house uh, that from the front, it did not look abandoned, but I knew it was because, well, side note, I had contacted, uh, well, he was uh, the building department to get our list because we have a list in our dispatch where it is. So he told me what the list of homes was and that's where I got to start my canvas. And so I knew that the home was abandoned, but from the front, Dude. you would not know. You know, nobody had broken the windows. It wasn't boarded up, but the back was boarded up because that's where people broke in from. But it's these tall fences, tall fences that you couldn't see into the backyard. So I went to the windows and I saw people peeking and hide. Mm. So, okay. So I called for backup. Hey, I got somebody in the uh, home. I made entry. Should have waited for backup. I did not. You should always wait for backup. You should always wait for backup. Don't yes. you watch TV? You should always wait <laughs> right, for backup. You should always wait. Should this always is wait. when the audience is screaming, don't, don't go in! <laughs> you know, yeah, I was just at that time because it was a young girl who looked around a corner to the front window because there were no window drapes and then back out. Mm. So, you know, I knew there was a kid in there, but I didn't know the situation. And you should always wait for assistance. I did call it in. However, I didn't wait. So I, I made entry. And when I made entry and went around the corner, I see the young girl, The you know, I found her and she's 
Sure's with the her friend that's not really her friend. So I take them both out of the home, return the girl to her mom. And then the other girl, she had to get a ride from the station and her parents were sighted. And literally a week later, another call comes in. Same house, same girl. And this went on for maybe about a week and a half where I would have to go. And she now at this point, the mother's calling me by name, calling the station. I want him here. So after I go through the motions and, and start not just taking the young girl home, I will find her. I will let her mom know I found her. Then I would like take her out for something to eat. And then I would talk to her. Mm-hmm. opposed to just returning her. So now, because for me, I wanted to know, is it something she's running from? Because mm-hmm. one of the worst things I can ever think of is returning someone to an abusive situation right. because we don't know. But that luckily that wasn't the case. And it was just some things that she was just confused on that she wanted to work out. So I talked to her about it and started to just check up on her. And, and from there, it was everything just quieted down. And one of the this is probably one of the coolest things that has ever happened to me on a job. I came in for my shift and in our hallway, the mom, her daughter, other parts of their family, and they had balloons and and a card and and started clapping because she had graduated eighth grade and she was getting better and started to get back on, you know, her treatment from, you know, from the therapist. And I was just taken back because I never asked for any of that. I was just, I I saw somebody that was like, yo, you know, you can help this person. And it was like on my heart to help this person. And it was just the coolest thing ever, man. I just have to say for our listeners that right now we are seeing the biggest smile (laughs) on anybody's face. He's grinning. And, you know, we don't get a lot of grinning, it seems, on best case, worst case, Jim. So... What you said to her obviously made an impact on her life, and they were thanking you for that. Yeah. And, and the fact that, unlike other officers, not that we're throwing them under the bus or anything, but they saw it as an annoyance, where you yeah. saw it as an opportunity. Right. And that's really an amazing thing. And I'm going to take a wild guess here, just a wild guess, and say this is a best case for you. Yeah, this was a. Can you tell us why? Well, when I first got on the job, officer said to me, you know, there's so much hate and so much evil and so much bad that you're going to come across. And, you know, with bad guys, they say they, they run, they get away. You got 20 years to catch them, which is the life of your, your career. And he says to me, but if you can help one person that makes your 20 years worth it, if you can genuinely help one person and that just stuck with me and you know, and I've helped, you know, I've, I've helped quite a few, but for her, it was just, she was just a lost soul mm. and nobody cared to shine. Like her parents cared, but they didn't know what to do because they had other kids, Right. you know, and they're crying for help. And for me, being the police, it's being the police is about catching bad guys and whatever, but it's more so about community service. You know, mm-hmm. it's more so about knowing, like I was probably one of the only officers that would park my car at the end of a block and I would go walk the beat. And other cops thought I was crazy. But when I got into the narcotics division, all those people that I used to say hi to, all those old people that sit on their porch, right? I knew everything. It's all about 
the connections. I mean, yeah. that's one thing that the FBI does right. I mean, they require FBI agents to develop informants, develop confidential witnesses right from the start, because that kind of network, I mean, you can't replace it. Yep. It's it's really amazing. Well, what you're talking about is true community policing. Gangs yeah, in the yeah. community that you are policing. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it goes a long way. It goes a long way, and it feels great. I mean, yeah, I've, I've you know, collared you know, huge cases as far as I'm concerned. But the positive outcome right. is so much better than a positive negative, which means a positive outcome off of horrible negative situation. Right. But but something where to this day, you know, I, I, I used to, when I go back to Chicago and I see her and I'll see her walking down the street because I'll go through my town and they call me Officer Hollywood, you know. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> and it's like, hey, Officer Hollywood, you know, and it's and it's always like a um like an update. You're like, yeah, you know, I'm in drama class and and this and I was like, oh, well, that's great, you know what I'm saying? And it's just and it's they, like a lot of the kids in the neighborhood slowly but surely became my kids. It felt that's like awesome. you know that's awesome. And I think an important point to make is that with teenagers, especially you know troubled teenagers they tend to be pushing away from their parents. And mm -hmm. even if they have great parents, they don't respect them. Right. However, if another adult, especially somebody in a position of authority, pays them time and attention and, and makes them feel important, that is just an amazing thing. Now, of course, there are bad people who take advantage yes. of that. But to have somebody who is a role model, such as yourself, to have spent the time not only to find her over and over again, but to sit down and talk to her and be that role model for her, be that sort of guiding light. Well, that's an amazing thing. And we really want to thank you for your service in that case. And I'm sure many other cases where you did a tremendous amount of work and never got the party and the <laughs> right, balloons yeah. and, the, and the applause. So. For that, we really want to thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. That's what a great story. I love a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> and we hope to have you back again soon to tell us about another case over the course of your career. But Excellent. for now, we're signing off on this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A., Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wondery. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power. And when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe. And you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org. Oh,